Well, I just want to start by saying that I am incredibly thankful uh, to be here. I genuinely consider uh, coming back to this church and, and, and preaching the word of God to be, to be a privilege. Uh, I know I've been gone, as, as Kevin said, it's been six years now, so gone long enough to where I do not actually know most of you personally, uh, but I still consider uh, this church uh, to be home in a sense um, and have an enduring connection and love for this body. And uh, so I'm very thankful for all of you. Redeemer has meant so much to me, my family, and King's Church, uh, that it's, it's truly difficult to, to express how grateful I am, but I am. I am grateful, grateful for you, and I am honored uh, to be able to, to bring you the word this morning. And let's go ahead and, and turn our attention to that, to the word of God. And specifically, as you, you no doubt picked up on the scripture reading, what the word has to say about quarrelsomeness. That will actually be our focus this morning. And to really get a sense of what scripture has to say about the issue, we're gonna end up looking at a, at a number of different passages. And so we're kind of taking something like a more systematic approach to the topic. But before we jump in, before we start walking through those passages, I, I think it would be helpful to go ahead and define our terms. Right? What is a quarrel? What is quarrelsomeness? Well, one of my favorite explanations comes from an article written by, by Tom Hicks in an article titled, What is Quarreling? Not very original, but very, very helpful. And there he simply defines quarreling as a verbal fight. A verbal fight. And I think that's helpful. Because you see, though there are many different words that get translated as quarrel in our Bibles, really behind each of them lies this basic meaning of, of to fight, the idea of strife. Not a physical fight, of course. No, it is one that is waged with our words. It is a verbal conflict. And so that's the definition of quarreling that we will kind of work with uh, throughout the rest of this morning, a verbal fight. Of course, in saying that, it is worth clarifying that not all conflict that we might have with someone fits the definition, right, or qualifies as a quarrel. Sometimes, you see, the reality is we do indeed need to address sin and error in the lives of others. That's, that's true. That's not necessarily, by its very nature, a quarrel, right? Even though it does bring with it some level of conflict. So not all conflict is bad. But conflict becomes a quarrel when sin enters into the picture. When it becomes aggressive, when it becomes sinfully combative, when that speech with others becomes contentious, right? And it begins to form this pattern of, of assuming the worst of others and maybe even going so far as to misrepresent others and really just sharply biting at others with our words. That's a quarrel. It is a verbal fight that lacks the patience, hope, and gentleness of Christ. And of all of the things that I could have chosen to talk to you about this morning, I have chosen this particular topic because of how prevalent it is in the world around us. 
In fact, I would consider it rather urgent. I mean, you turn on the news, you'll see it. You hop on social media and you are sure to find it. It is alive and well with with what feels like a renewed vigor and it, it has almost become of the very fabric of the way that we are expected to interact with others. The truth is, it is not just an issue that the world out there faces, but it is a temptation and a struggle for those within the church as well. And so this morning, I I would like to quite simply call us to be on guard regarding quarrelsomeness in our own hearts and to work at distancing ourselves from strife and to instead respond like Christ, respond with kindness and gentleness even when we may have to correct someone. In other words, to avoid quarrels with Christ-like kindness. That's the call this morning. And I wanna show us how to do this in four steps. Four steps. And the first of which is to simply acknowledge the sinfulness of quarrels. That's the first thing. The sinfulness of quarrels. You see, if we're going to avoid them and in its place respond with Christ-like kindness, the first step is to acknowledge that it is indeed a sin. Yes, it is a sin, let's be very clear, that we are forgiven for in Christ, absolutely. But like all sin, it is still one with which we must do regular battle in Christ. And I think the best way to show you this, the best way to kind of wrap our minds around this idea is to just let the abundant witness of scripture speak for itself on the matter. And so let's look, let's look at just a few of the many places where the word of God addresses this idea. And we're going to begin with Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3. And this is a verse, I want to start here, because I, I think it states the matter about as succinctly as possible. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3, which reads, honor belongs to the person who ends a dispute, but any fool can get himself into a quarrel. Now, the book of Proverbs, of course, is a book of wisdom. It is God's wisdom for our lives in Christ, how it is that we are to live. And here in this proverb, rather unmistakably, we are called to avoid disputes and quarrels. The proverb says, honor belongs to the one who ends a dispute, one who shuts it down. And and the, the verb there for ends a dispute, right? it can speak of either ceasing a quarrel, so ending it once it has begun, or resisting it, so you never get, it and get started with it in the first place. Either of those ideas is kind of bound up in that verb. In other words, the call is to avoid strife, avoid quarrels. And it is to our honor when we do, meaning it is commendable. It brings glory to God. However, on the flip side, In the second half of that verse, we read that it is foolish, however, to regularly get ourselves involved in quarrels, meaning it is unwise, it's sinful. Interestingly, the word for quarrel there at the end of that proverb, 
It it literally means to expose, and it is often used to refer to a snarling dog that is exposing its teeth as it readies for a fight. And our Lord is telling us here that that type of propensity to, to snarl and to fight with our words, it's foolish. Instead, we ought to avoid all such disputing. As I think Matthew Henry very beautifully comments, it is an honor to withdraw an action, to drop a controversy, to forgive an injury, and to be friends with those that we have fallen out with. It is the honor of a man, a wise man, a man of spirit, to show the command he has of himself by ceasing from strife, yielding, stooping, receding from his just demands for peace's sake. You see, what we learn here in this proverb is that our Lord reckons quarreling and combative disputes as foolish, as sinful. And that's not just an isolated warning. This is something we see repeatedly throughout the book of Proverbs. You could turn to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19. So just a couple chapters before, which reads, an offended brother is harder to reach than a fortified city and quarrels are like the bars of a fortress. Quarreling there is described like bars across the gate of a city, making entrance into that fortress near impossible. And in the particular context of that proverb with the offended brother, we learn that it ultimately quarrels, that is, destroys relationships. It divides and it makes reconciliation harder. It makes entrance into the city near impenetrable. Quarreling does all of that. Or Proverbs 19.13. And I'm going to explain this one after I read it. Proverbs 19.13. A foolish son is ruined to his father and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Now, this particular proverb is written from the father's perspective. It's worth pointing out because both men and women can be quarrelsome. It's not just with the wife, but this particular proverb is written from the perspective of the father. And we learn here that a foolish son for him dishonors the family name and a quarreling wife is like a dripping of rain. It's like a leaky roof that destroys the structure of the home. It leads to anguish and ultimately makes it uninhabitable. I mean, listen to that. Quarrelsomeness destroys the structure of the home. It breaks down unity. It makes it unbearable. And this is true whenever quarreling is a part of any relationship. When it exists between a husband and a wife, when it exists within a church, when it exists among citizens of a country, quarreling is always destructive to that relationship. Contentious speech will always be damaging. So the Proverbs teach us. And that's just a few examples from the book of Proverbs. If you go to the New Testament, you'll find that it remains just as clear, maybe even more so. For example, Paul in Romans 13, 13 says, let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. Just note the list there in which quarreling finds itself. 
Or how about Romans 14, 1, which says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, in Romans 14, what Paul is getting at there is that when there is an issue between believers, an issue that is not clearly addressed in the word of God, then it should not result in quarrels and arguments. Doesn't mean we can't talk about it. Doesn't mean we can't make a case for what we believe to be most wise. But nevertheless, we ought to be able to extend to each other liberty and grace in issues that are matters of wisdom not continually run to fight one another. I think you're getting the point here, and I have like nine more passages listed that deal with quarreling, but I don't have time to walk through all of those, so let me just give you two more. Two more. Second Timothy chapter two, this is what we began by reading, but this time, uh, I wanna read it from the, the ESV, and I'll read the next few from the ESV. I think the, the way it words it is somewhat helpful here. So Second Timothy chapter two, and I'm gonna begin in verse 14 in which Paul, speaking to Timothy about how he is to shepherd and lead those under his care, says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearer. Verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Do you hear all of that? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. We are not to quarrel over words. We are not to engage in in foolish controversies that result in quarrels because all that that will do in the end is ruin the hearer. Instead, Paul says the Lord's servant ought to be kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil and correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now I just want to stop right there. I want to stop right there and point out, even even just with reading those words, just reading straight from Scripture, and point out how how countercultural that idea is right now. And so often that the last thing that we that we want to do when we disagree with someone is to engage them with patience, kindness, and gentleness. And we're, we're we're so prone to to be on the attack, to tear down, to assume the worst. Too often it is to quarreling that we run, not faith, love, and peace. Let me give you one more. Titus chapter three. Again, Paul speaking to Titus who pastors a church and says to him in chapter three, verse one, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And so Paul is telling Titus, remind the church you pastor, remind those people of God to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to instead be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
In fact, he goes so far as to say, if you go down to verse nine, still Titus three, when he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He goes so far as to say, the one who stirs up division and who quarrels in this way should be warned twice and then we are to have nothing more to do with them. That is a weighty statement, is it not? And it communicates to us that, that quarrelsomeness simply has no place among the people of God because it dishonors God and it ultimately destroys the unity of his people. And as I've, I've, I've said from the beginning, really, it's, it's everywhere in our world. I mean, this is in our own country, right? How the, the two political sides, I'm not gonna get political, but it's how the two political sides talk to each other or more likely, how the, or more accurately, how they yell at each other, right? It's all too often how members of the same household interact with one another. Husbands and wives and parents and children. And it is even all too often how people within the church speak to one another. Let me plead with you for a moment if I can. I want to ask you to watch out for this. Be on guard when it comes to this. In all of those different areas. I mean, if, if the, the political pundits that you listen to if they spend most of their time just kind of fighting with others, can I at least suggest that you consider listening to someone else? If this is what your home life feels like, can I ask you to, to recognize this and, and ask others in the church to help you and, and to seek to respond to each other with gentleness? And if this is what the the podcasters you listen to, right? The, the public pastors, if this is what they do, if they're spending most of their time verbally attacking others, demonstrating a contentious spirit, could, could I ask you to maybe learn from someone else? The reality is this is a prevalent problem and it is a real temptation and we need to be on guard. We must recognize the sinfulness of quarreling and do all that we can to avoid it. That's the first step. It is acknowledging the sinfulness of quarrels. But of course it doesn't end there. And that's because our problem isn't just up here. It isn't because we, we just don't know enough verses. No, our problem is in here. And what that means is that just reminding us to stop quarreling, just saying, hey, let's all stop quarreling, like that's not gonna work. That's not enough. No, we actually need to address the underlying cause. We, we need to get to the root and we need to see what produces this type of quarrelsomeness within us. And that's what brings us to the second step this morning, the cause of quarrels. You see, if we're going to avoid them, we need to not only know that it is a sin, but we need to know what causes that sin within us. What sparks the impulse to, to verbally spar with others? 
What is the underlying root problem that produces combative and contentious spirits? Well, for that, I'd like to take us to James chapter four, verses one and two. If you can, turn there with me. James chapter four, verses one and two. I will again read this passage in the the ESV. But listen to what it says. James asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's our question this morning. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is here teaching these early Christians what the root cause is of their quarrels and their fights. He's showing them what really lies behind it. And maybe surprisingly, when you read that passage, he says that it is your passions waging war within you. Uh What does that mean? Well, the word passions there, it really kind of refers to your inner desire and specifically your inner desires for self-satisfaction. That's what the word communicates. And he's saying that that your desires, those desires for self-satisfaction, they are warring within you and then that spills out. And when it spills out, it spills out onto other people and it is what causes quarrels and fights. And that means that if we want to avoid quarreling, we have to begin by examining our inner desires. We have to start with what's going on in here. And according to James there in verse two, It starts with an inner desire to have what we currently do not have. Notice he says there in verse two, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He's talking about covetousness there. It's a difficult word to say. I'm gonna keep trying. Covetousness. And he's saying that is ultimately the underlying cause of your quarrels. It is this deep desire or this deep longing for something that you do not currently have. And if that seems strange to you, like, well, why, why covetousness? Why, why would coveting something produce quarrels? What's the correlation there? Well, to answer that, let's just think for a moment about what coveting something reveals about our hearts. Because it's not just materialism. That's often how we think of it. We think of coveting something. We think of coveting some material object, something physical, tangible. But it's not just that. It's actually much bigger than that. Really, behind covetousness is discontentment. When we covet something, when we feel jealous for something, when we feel this kind of deep, insatiable longing for something, we are actually in that moment expressing a discontentment with God. We certainly wouldn't verbalize it that way, that's for sure. But it is as though in that moment we're saying, God, I'm not really all that happy with what you have provided for me right now. What you have supplied in your sovereign providence is insufficient. I need something more. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it might even reveal a dissatisfaction with Christ himself. Because in that act of coveting, it is is though we are saying, 
despite all the blessings I have in Christ. And Paul in Ephesians 1 makes it abundantly clear, you have them all. Despite all the blessings I have in Christ, in this particular moment, it's not enough. I need something else, and so I'm coveting something else. I will only be satisfied if I acquire something more than what I currently have in Jesus. It's actually what makes covetousness so pernicious. But that then leads to a question, doesn't it? Well, how does that produce quarrels? What does coveting have to do with quarreling? Well, let's just think about it for a moment. Right? As I mentioned, right, the, the desire we have for things doesn't have to be for material things. Sometimes what we desire is actually that another person might conform themselves and their way of thinking to our position on something. Sometimes what we desire is for someone to come around to our views. So we want that person with who we are engaging and with who we are interacting, we want them to agree with us and we want it badly. And when we don't get what we want, we fight. We get combative in order to try to force them to comply. Or maybe we just want people to respect us. We want others to consider us wise and intelligent, and so we will quarrel in order to subdue them into acknowledging our brilliance. Maybe we just want the circumstances of our lives to be as we imagined them to be. As we had planned. And if someone threatens that, if someone gets in the way of that, well, then we might just have to pull out our verbal weapons and wage war until they treat us how we want to be treated. Do you see how our inner desire for things and specifically how coveting those things can lead to quarrels. And listen, it, it could even be for good things. Like maybe someone really is in error. Maybe what they believe is wrong. Maybe the path they're walking truly is dangerous. Meaning, maybe what we want truly is good. But here's the thing. Even in those situations... We are not justified in resorting to quarreling in order to achieve it. For the Christian, the end never justifies the means. We do not fight fire with fire and we do not result to quarreling in order to get what we want no matter what it is. It's simply not the means that Christ has given us by which to persuade people. Instead, instead we are to remain satisfied with what we have in Christ and who he is. We are to trust in the sovereign work of God in this world and know that if we are faithful, he will indeed work all things out as they should be. And that means that when we're disagreeing with someone, when we have a disagreement, we can trust the spirit to work in their hearts and not fall back on quarreling as a means to force them to change. We can trust in the Lord's appointed means and not take matters into our own hands, which ultimately just reveals pride. 
covetousness, a desire for what we want on our terms. But the truth is, quarreling never works. It does not persuade, right? It does not reconcile. It only hardens and it only destroys relationships. Quite simply, quarreling is not Christ-like. And Christ-likeness is our goal as Christians. And in our union with Jesus by faith, we not only want to be satisfied in him, but we want to be like him. And that's actually what brings us to the third step this morning, the pursuit of Christ's likeness. You see, we avoid quarreling by acknowledging its tempting sinfulness and its prideful, covetous root, but then we must look to Christ alone if we're going to be able to respond differently. That's the third step. We avoid quarreling by looking to Christ and by pursuing Christ-likeness. Here's what I mean. Jesus, in his sinless earthly life, he ultimately shows us the way that we are to live. He gives us a righteous example to follow. It's not just a mere example, as though we're supposed to live up to the example of Jesus. That would actually be quite impossible. But it is nonetheless an example. And in that example, he is actually achieving the very means of our justification. And this is important. In the example he sets, he is achieving the means of our justification. You see, in every instance in which he perfectly fulfills the law of God, in every instance in which he does what you and I have failed to do, he is then providing the basis by which we can be saved. So that through faith in his finished work, through faith in what he's done, his holiness can be imputed to us. His righteous standing can be credited to our account. It's not something we earn. It is something that we receive by faith. So we look to Christ and there we find forgiveness specifically for all of our failures in the area of quarrelsomeness. We find forgiveness there. And that's good news. But here's the thing. Christ's perfection here It's not only the means of our forgiveness and salvation, but it also then becomes the very model of godliness. It shows us the way that we are to live. We are to pursue Christ-likeness. So what does that, the pursuit of Christ-likeness, what does that have to do with quarreling? Well, in this particular matter, When it comes to quarrels with others, Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He never quarreled, not one time. Now, he certainly had the opportunity to do so. He constantly engaged the the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but he does not quarrel with them. Instead, he responds to them with words of deep wisdom that constantly left people in awe of his authority. His disciples, they continually misunderstood him. At times, they flat out ignore him. But he does not berate them or enter into verbal combat with them. No, he gently and patiently corrects them. 
That's the example that our Lord set. As, as Matthew 12, 19 says, referring to Jesus, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. His ministry was marked by gentleness and kindness. Now, yes, he absolutely spoke truth. And Jesus at times said some really hard things. But he never resorted, excuse me, to quarreling or verbal fighting. It's just who he is. And as we pursue Christ's likeness, it's who we are to be as well. What this means is that we look to Christ and we receive by faith his perfect obedience on our behalf, recognizing that he has done perfectly all that we have failed to do. And that is the way in which we are saved. And the more we grasp of that saving work of Christ done on our behalf, the more we will love him, the more we will desire him, the more we will be completely satisfied in him, and the more we are satisfied in him, the less our passions will wage war within us, coveting something else. All of this makes us want Jesus and want to be like Jesus. And that's what ultimately brings us to the fourth and final step this morning. The way of kindness. The way of kindness. You see, when we grasp the sinfulness of quarreling, when we really think about its underlying cause and then look to Christ for forgiveness and for the path of godliness, what we find then is the way of kindness. I'm just going to explain this one to you with scripture. First, I want you just to begin by, by recalling a few of the passages that I read earlier. 2 Timothy 2 would be a good place to go. But you remember Paul's words to Timothy there. You remember that he, he contrasted something with quarreling. Let me read it to you again, remind you. 2 Timothy 2, 22 and following. He said, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Notice the contrast. Paul teaches us that the Christ-likeness we are to exhibit is kindness. We are to be kind in our speech. We are to be kind in the way that we interact with others. And I think it's worth just taking a moment right now and asking ourselves, is that true of me? Does that exemplify the way I talk? Does it exemplify the way that I interact with other people? You think, okay, okay, be kind, I got it. But, but who all do I have to be kind to? Well, Paul says everyone. Be kind to everyone, to all people. Well, there's gotta be some exceptions. I mean, what about those who are our enemies? What about those who are unkind to us? What about those who are evil? That's the exception, right? Then, and if they're threatening us, then we can do whatever it takes. Well, there in verse 24, Paul says, 
Be patient, or more specifically, patiently endure evil. Patiently endure evil, recognizing that it is ultimately the Lord who will avenge his people. And whether he gives us relief now or not, we know that in the future he will. And so we can patiently endure that evil now. And I think that prompts us to ask another question. Do I trust him enough to live like that? Do I really trust the Lord enough to fight evil with kindness? Because that's the only way it's possible. To correct our opponents, right? Not with zingers and sarcasm and sick burns or whatever else it might be, right? But to correct with gentleness. It's the way of Christ. Kindness and gentleness in our response to others, not a combative spirit. Or as Paul told Titus, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. You know, I don't feel as though in talking about this that I can really emphasize to us all, and myself included here, really emphasize to us just how challenging this is. Unless we we take seriously what the Lord is saying to us throughout his word, and it's all throughout, then we will not be prepared to respond with kindness and gentleness when the world would love from us a little heat and fury. We must take seriously what the Lord has called us to here. Of course, in acknowledging all of that, we do in the end have to realize that this is not something that we are capable of doing in our own strength. This is a work of the Holy Spirit within us. You see, as we are united to Christ, the Spirit comes to dwell within us. And as we continually look to Christ in faith, the Spirit softens our hearts and sanctifies us into this type of people, kind and gentle people. Of course, in saying all of that, I would like to add one more thing here. I don't often do this, but I would like to address an objection that you might have heard to some of what I'm saying to you this morning. Because sometimes you will hear people say, you know, Christians aren't actually called to be nice. We're called to speak truth, not be nice. Well, setting aside the fact that I I sometimes worry that that is a sentiment expressed to justify quarrelsomeness, as though you can't do both, setting that aside, let's grant it. That's true. You will not find a single verse in all of Scripture that calls us to be nice. There's not one. But Scripture does call us to walk by the Spirit and to demonstrate His fruit. And I just want to remind us what that means. It means, according to Galatians 5, 22, 
That we are to demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It means, according to James 3.17, that we are to be peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere, sowing peace. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, repaying no one evil for evil, but always seeking to do good to one another and to everyone. Colossians 3.12, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance and forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 13, love others with patience and kindness and without boasting arrogance or rudeness, not insisting on our own way, but instead bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, and enduring all things. So fine. There's not a verse that says, be nice. But we are called to so much more than that. And in Christ, by the power of the Spirit dwelling within us, that is who he is recreating us to be. That is who we are as adopted sons and daughters of God. That is the way of kindness. And it ought to define our interactions with everyone. And so when we, when we find ourselves in a, in a disagreement... Let's not see that as an opportunity just to, to get what we want by any means necessary. Instead, let's see that as an opportunity to love and serve, to be gentle and kind, to listen carefully, to represent accurately, and as far as it depends upon us, to make peace. And I believe that when we approach others, with that kind of fruit of the Spirit on display, even when we have to correct. We're showing that we care about far more than just winning an argument. We care about their soul. That is what we are called to in Christ. And so in closing, let me just remind us it's true that we live in a world full of quarreling and it is both inside and outside of the church. But it is not who we are in Christ and it is not the way to point people to Christ. So let us recognize its sinfulness. Let's address its root cause and let us pursue Christ and together pursue the way of Christ-like kindness. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful this morning for the abundant grace that you have lavished on us in Christ. That we are saved, not through any works of our own, but by faith in the finished work of Jesus. And as we truly rest on the glorious reality of the, the eternal life that that promises us. Let us truly be satisfied in Christ. And in our satisfaction with him, help us to love him and to live like him and to avoid quarrels with Christ-like kindness. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.